Second Samuel chapter 12, I'm preaching before I'm preaching, but Second um, Samuel chapter 12, that's where we're going this morning. I invite you, uh, open your Bibles there, and we're going to jump in. Um, as I was studying this passage this morning, or <laughs> yeah, um, I, I planned this this morning. <clears throat> it's been a long day already. Uh, as I was studying this passage this week, uh, an experience that I had when I was in college sort of came back to me. I was a uh, young life leader all throughout college, and um, I, I worked and did young life and did school, and so I'd meet with high school students really whenever I was available and they were willing. And so I had a student that I met with um, pretty much weekly uh, at six in the morning, and we would meet at this cafe um, in Fort Collins. And um, one morning I'd gotten in way late last, the night before, and so I just um, hopped into bed. And I got up that morning at 6 a.m. and just threw on the same clothes that I had taken off the night before, hopped in my car, and went to the cafe that we met at. I went down, and I, I sat down with my friend, and we were just talking about life and about faith. And we were there for about five minutes um, when the waitress walked up to my table. And she walked up to my table holding um, what looked to be a huge wool sock in her hand. And she held it up, and I'm thinking to myself, I didn't see that on the menu, but maybe there's like a backside that I didn't see yet. Um, so so she's, looking at, she's looking at me holding this wool sock, and she says to me, Sir, this sock fell out of your pants as you walked in the door. <laughs> so evidently, I'd taken the pants off the night before and, and had a, you know, all in one foul swoop, which men can do. We can take all of our clothes off in one motion, um, and then I put them back on the morning of, and a sock was pinned in my leg, and evidently, it shook loose while I walked in the door, and so she, it's an awkward thing to have an entire breakfast holding a dirty sock, you know, you, and it makes me wonder, too, how they spread that story in the five minutes it took them to give me back this sock, right? And I, and I had this completely unrealistic view of myself when I walked in to that restaurant. I mean, I thought I was dressed appropriately, right? Uh, but I, I obviously wasn't. I obviously wasn't. I think we've all had those moments in life where somebody will point out like something stuck in our teeth or wrong with our clothes or something like that where um, they point out that maybe what we believe to be true isn't. Uh, is it just me, or can those moments be um, awkward and, and painful and, and shocking? In fact, it's, it's almost as awkward to tell you the story this morning as it, is, as it was to sit at that table that day with my friend. <laughs> Isn't the same thing true for us so spiritually? That there's things that are true about us and our relationship with God that are hard for us to see, uh, that, that oftentimes... We get good, and, and maybe sometimes even church can help us with this, but we get good at, at lying to ourselves about what's really true and what's really, what's really real. David's going to have this awkward conversation this morning with his pastor, with the prophet Nathan, where Nathan's going to point out some things going on in David's life that, um, that David had sort of pushed down long enough that he conveniently forgot was there. The interesting thing about David's life is, is it's sort of bookended. I mean, it starts where David launches onto the scene in all of his splendor and all of his glory in, in his interaction, quote-unquote, with the, the giant Goliath, right? I mean, and he is this little guy, the underdog, who's victorious against the Philistine giant Goliath. So his life is tied to Goliath. When you think of David, you think of either one of two people, Goliath or Bathsheba. Goliath or Bathsheba. Those are the two people that his life is really tied to. 
And Goliath is a picture of his victory, and, and in many ways, Bathsheba is a picture of his defeat, and a picture of his failure, and a picture of his shortcoming as a king. And God still calls him a man after his own heart. So keep that in mind. As we, as we jump into this text this morning, keep that in mind. If you have a Bible, let me just give a little bit of context before we jump in. And in chapter 11, so the chapter before the one that we're going to be really diving into, it starts like this in verse 1. In the spring, at the time of war, when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But, and circle that word if you have your own Bible, but, because the, the author of 2 Samuel is going to tell us something with the way that they write this passage. But David remained in Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting that David sends the army, he sends his men off to fight a war that, uh, based on the time, based on the culture, David should have been front and center in. I mean, he should have been out fighting. He should have been the one leading the charge, inspiring the men, and he relegated his job and his duty to somebody else, to somebody else. Now, now here's this. I'm just going to say this. It's not a coincidence that David has shirked his responsibility as a leader and as a man to somebody else, and he falls into sin during the same time. It's just, it's not a coincidence that that happens. I think this is especially sort of true, intrinsically true within men, is that we want a we sort of a battle to engage in. We want, so, we want some sort of purpose, and we want some sort of meaning, and, and, and so we get dangerous when we get bored. We get, we get dangerous when life loses its meaning, and we start to go and try to find one on our own, and we can find one. It's just not usually the one that God has called us to fight. So, so when we get... Yeah, I'm dispassionate about, about loving our wife, we'll find something or someone else to love. And when we um, become unpassionate about building into our kids and whatever season of life you're in, when we get bored, we get dangerous. And so here's what happens with David. There's this key word throughout the chapter 11. It's this word sent. And listen to it. One evening, David got up from bed, and he walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Now, can all the men agree that we are glad that that is not a cultural norm anymore? And the woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And then David sent messengers to get her. David sends messengers to go find out about her. David sends messenger, messengers to go get her. You'll read down further in the passage. David sleeps with her and sends her away. Now, David also gets her pregnant, so then David sends for her husband, Uriah, and brings him back so that he can sleep with his wife and presumably get her pregnant. That's sort of the goal David has. Well, Uriah is so dedicated to the mission that David had given him that he says, my men will not fight on the front lines of battle while I'm home enjoying the comforts of home and my wife. So he says, no, it's not going to happen. And so David sends Uriah back to the front lines of battle where he dies. After that, David sends once again for Bathsheba, and he brings her into his palace, and he marries her as one 
of his wives. It's a lot of sending for David to do. It's a lot of sending for David to do. And I point that out because the first verse in chapter 12 picks up this theme. Verse 1. And the Lord sent who? Nathan to David. Here's what the author of 2 Samuel is showing us. See, David, you thought you were playing God. David, you thought you were calling the shots, and indeed, God let you call the shots for a little while, but only for a little while. And David, now God's taking back his rifle reins, and he's the one who's going to do the sending now. He's the one who's going to do the sending, and so God sends the prophet Nathan to David. Because God isn't willing that we should live our lives in deception. It's not his goal that we would have enough church to be blinded to who we really are. In fact, it's just the opposite. This is what we're going to see in this passage, is that God loves you, he loves me enough to, in his grace and in his mercy, expose our sin. And that's exactly what God does with, with, through the prophet Nathan, as he takes this mirror and he holds it up, and I blinded people first service, so I'm going to try not to do that. And he, and he holds it up in front of David. And he says, David, this is who you really are. This is what you've really done. Before we get into all the backstory and what happens through the prophet of Nathan in the life of David, I just need you to hear that God's purpose in holding the mirror up in your life, in my life, in David's life, is not to come down heavy-handed on him. In fact, it's to free him and to bring him into life. Look at this psalm in Psalm chapter 32, verses 3 through 5. Listen to the way that David writes about just the, the angst that sin created in him. He says, When I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. So, so when, I, when I held this in, it affected me in my, in my body, I think he's saying. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So what he says here is that when I kept sin in and when I held sin down and when I wasn't willing to look at it for what it really was, it killed me. But when I brought it out into the light, when I confessed it, he says, you restored me. And sometimes seeing ourselves for who we really are is really painful. I'll just say it first person. For me, sometimes seeing myself for who I really am is painful. It hurts, it stings, and sometimes I'd rather not. But God says, listen, sometimes I send a, a mirror through my word, through my spirit, through my people to say, hey, will you wake up? Will you wake up to reality? Will you wake up to reality? See, the, the pain of bringing sin into the light is worth the joy that comes from being restored to Jesus. My prayer has been twofold this week. I'm just going to lay my cards on the table. Twofold. One, that God, through his Holy Spirit, would stir in us 
a, 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 a holy conviction of our sin that we might bring it to God and have him shine the light of grace and mercy on it. Two, that I would preach an Old Testament passage about sin under a new covenant understanding of mercy. So those are my two goals. I'm just laying them on the table. I'd invite you to tell me how I do, okay? Those are, but, but those are my goals, all right? 2 Samuel chapter 1, let's jump into the story. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. And he raised it. And it grew up with him and his children. And he shared, and it shared its food. And he drank from his cup. And even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. So this guy's weird. <laughs> I mean, so this, this parable starts out, let me tell you about a really weird guy. He really loved this lamb. So there is biblical precedence for loving animals so much that we sort of name them and bring them into our home and dress them up in Christmas outfits. And um, of course, it's either about lambs or dogs. It's never about cats. Those are not of God ever. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. You see, we're going to have like two sections next time, the, the cat section and the not cat it was like a daughter to him. Now, hopefully the guy didn't have any daughters that were like, hey, I'm on the same level as the ewe lamb, right? And now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and he prepared it for the one who had come to him. And David burned with anger against the man. And he said to Jonathan, or Nathan, sorry, he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Now, words he potentially might regret in like T minus five seconds. <laughs> he must pay for that lamb four times over, which interestingly enough is the Torah's punishment for what's been done. So David's going to bring in, hey, here's what the Bible says about that. I got the Bible answer to the, to the sin problem four times over. That's what deserves to happen. And because he did, did such a thing and had no pity. And in one of the best lines in the whole Bible, in one of the sort of climactic points in the, the life of David, then Nathan said to David, and you have to wonder what his face looked like and what his eyes looked like. Did he make eye contact with the most powerful man that he'd ever stand in front of? Or did his eyes sort of drip down to the floor, drop down to the floor as he said, David, you are the man. Not David, you're the man. <laughs> Which David had heard a lot of in his life. But David... Now, just one, how does David not see that coming? I mean, we, I read it in hindsight and go, no, dude, he's talking about you. Like, back up that he deserves to die train immediately. <laughs> Until I sort of take a step back and see the way that, that sin has this ability in us to blind us. 
See, I think one of the things that this passage would teach us is that sin blinds us to reality and causes us to walk in lifeless deception. David does it for, for about 18 months, as best we can put together the story, before Nathan shows up. He walks in this, in this sin, in this pain where his, his bones are breaking, but he's unwilling to go to God and he's unwilling to see who he really is because sin has this ability to, to blind us. See, see, my guess is that David, as he called for Bathsheba, doesn't feel like an adulterer. I bet he feels like a lover. And when David calls Uriah back from battle, I don't think, or to battle, I don't think he feels like a murderer. I think he feels like, like a king. And sin has this ability in, in me and in you to sort of cause us to redefine terms, doesn't it? So we start to think it's really not that bad, whatever it is that we're involved in. It's not that, it's not that I'm not forgiving, it's just that you don't know what they did to me. And it's not that I'm anger, angry and bitter, but it's that they deserve it. And it's not that I'm not generous, it's just that I don't have that much. And I think through God's word, sometimes what he wants to do is say, no, this is who you really are. And this is what's really going on. Not because I want to, who am I blinding? Everybody, great. <laughs> not because I want to, he says, not because I want to crush you and I want to destroy you, but because I want you to come home and I want to lead you towards my grace and my mercy that flows so abundantly, so abundantly. And I think we lie to ourselves long enough that we actually start to believe some of the things that we say. And we start to believe this, this really sort of humorous thing that we could actually hide from God. Here's the way God says it through the prophet Jeremiah. Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? I mean, it's sort of a rhetorical question. Like, like, like Jeremiah, tell me, don't I fill it all? Like, isn't it all mine? It's sort of like when, when my kids want to play hide and seek. My four-and-a-half-year-old will say to me, Dad, you want to play hide-and-seek? And I'm like, count me in, man. Like, I will hide so long, and I will fall asleep, and we will still, it will still be called bonding time, right? Like, no, fine. No, so like, he's like, all right, Dad, here's what I'm going to go hide in the closet, and then you come find me. I'm like, maybe we don't understand the terms of the game here, buddy, because you're supposed to hide, and I'm supposed to seek. And I think a lot of us, we do this with God. In our, in our sin, we think we can hide it and that he doesn't know. <laughs> he says he knows it all. I mean, can you imagine how potentially terrifying it would have been to be around Jesus? Where he just walks into a room and he's like, I don't know what you're thinking over there, but I, in fact, I do know what you're thinking over there. And that's not good. Oh. God says, come on. Let's not, let's not play games anymore because progress growth wholeness is only made once we see who we really are and so god sends nathan as i said before i think it should worry us a little bit that, that david quotes the bible he quotes the torah 
And he says, here's the punishment for that sin without being able to see, you're talking about me. So, so it's the thought in the back of your mind, I wish so-and-so were here to hear this. They really need it. And God may just be going, well, they, they, they may, but maybe you do too. Maybe we do too. Maybe I do too. You see, the, the Great Commission is to teach people to obey everything Jesus commands, not just to teach them to know. There's a difference. See, David knows, but he's not obedient. He knows, but he doesn't follow. I love the way that he prays it later on in, in the Psalms. In, in Psalm 139, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. Test me, God. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. So God, hold up the mirror. Hold up the mirror to me. Allow me see my, to see myself for who I really am and then lead me in the paths of righteousness. It's a great prayer. It's a hard prayer to pray. And then say to the Holy Spirit, okay, stir me. Where, where, do I, where do I have a false image of who I am? Because the longer I hold on to that, the more deceived I become. And the more deceived I become, the more unable I am to get out of that. And the more lifeless my life is. Would you be willing to pray that this morning? Here's the way the story continues. And Nathan said to David, you're the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel said. I, notice all the first person pronouns here, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and, and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And catch this part, this is unbelievable. And God says to him, and if this had been too little, if this hadn't been enough for you, David, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. And then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Notice all these things that God says to David, I did. I anointed you. I gave you a purpose. I gave you a promise. I gave you a land. I gave you a palace. I gave you, I gave it all to you, David. And David, if that hadn't been enough, I would have given you more. All you had to do was, was come to me and, and ask of me. I think that verse is, is poignant because God's, I think, would say to us too, like, do you know how much I've blessed you? Do you know how good I've been to you? Like, as you read through even just one chapter in, in Ephesians chapter 1, do you see that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms? That you've been called a son or daughter of the king, that you've been forgiven, washed clean, holy and blameless, pure before his throne. And he says, listen, I've done all of this for you. Here's what happens in David. 
And I think it happens in us too. It's just one word. It's called drift. Where the things that God's given us, the blessings that God has given us, start to become normal. They start to just be taken for granted. Yeah, I'm, I'm saved and I'm redeemed. Praise God. No, that's like, that's unbelievable. That he would save a person like you and a person like me. That he would invite us to be his sons and his daughters, washing us completely clean and making us perfect and holy in his sight. That's unreal. And he goes, hey, if that's not enough, then, then come to me and then and, and I will give you more. But the problem is that David didn't run to God. David took control himself. And you see, the truth that we see is that sin is a breach in relationship before it's a break in command. Here's the deal. Every single time, every sin in our life stems from a breach in relationship before it turns into any sort of disobedience in our practical life. Any sort of disobedience. So, so what... God essentially says to Nathan is what I gave you should have stirred gratitude in your heart, which should have led you to me, which should have led you to worship and remembering what you had and what you really deserved, but you forgot. Do you know that one of the most deeply spiritual, meaningful, and impactful things you can do in your life is to practice the discipline of gratitude? To think on the things that God has given you and the ways that God has been good to you? And to allow him to just stir your heart with his love and his goodness towards you. See, if it's true that sin is a breach in relationship before it's a break in command, it's also true that it's impossible to live a life of sin and abide in Jesus. It's impossible to live a life of sin and abide in Jesus. So that's why he says, abide in me, rest in me, come to me. And and if you do, you're going to bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so when God comes and he holds up this light to David, this mirror to David, he's saying, David, you're living a lifeless existence because you have separated yourself from the giver of all life. Listen to the way that the book of Jeremiah puts it. God says this, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water. They they left me. See, I was willing to pour into them and I was willing to give to them and be good to them, but they left. They left. And they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. See, see, we know that story, don't we? And every time we turn to something else other than the giver of life to try to find life, it ends up feeling like a broken cistern. We end up feeling exhausted and worn out and like our efforts are just going into some abyss because we're never really full. And God says the reason you aren't, you aren't is because you left me. You left me. Here's how the story continues. And then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against who? The Lord. Well, see, there's a lot of other people involved, weren't there? 
I mean, Bathsheba was involved. Uriah was involved. I mean, David could have inserted either of those names in there and been right. But what he notices is that before he sinned against Bathsheba and before he sinned against Uriah, verse 9 of the previous portion that we read says that he despised the word of the Lord. He walked away from God before he walked into bed with Bathsheba. That's what he says. And that was the more important thing. That was the most important thing in David's life is saying, God, all right, this is, a, this is a breaching covenant between you and me that I was walking with you and obeying you and following you, and I walked away. I walked away. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. Remember we started with God wants to expose our sin in order to lead us to the life that's found in his grace. And so when the prophet Nathan holds up this mirror and says, David, here's who you really are. And David says, I've sinned against God. Nathan's short response, is, his response is as short as David's confession. David just says, God, I've sinned against you. And Nathan says, and you're forgiven. I mean, like, no hoops to jump through. No, okay, do these, th this process of restoration. We're going to take you through it. And if you do these things and you prove that you're really sorry and you're not going to do it again, well, then, then you'll be restored. It's almost as though Nathan looked forward to what John would write. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, the truth of the matter is that sin is overcome through repentance and through resting in grace. Sin loses its power in your life and in my life, not as we go to God and try to feel really bad about what we've done, but as we go to God and see how far he's gone to forgive us. That's when, when sin starts to lose its power in our life. And see, look at the way that Paul says this in the book of Romans. For sin shall not be your master. Literally, it shall have no dominion over you. How? Why? Well, because you're not under law anymore, but you're under grace. You're not under law, you're under grace. There's this crazy, like, unbiblical saying that gets tossed around sometimes in church, and it's this. Well, you're just taking grace too far, Ryan. I mean, come on. Isn't there a time where we need to just be obedient? Yes. Isn't there a time where we, just, where we need to follow God? Yes. Isn't there a time where we need to feel sorry for our sin? Well, well only if it leads us to the cross. That's, that's godly sorrow. Where we, we're led to the cross to see that we've been redeemed and that he loves us enough to take our sin and absorb it in the personal work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And what this verse says is, you can't take grace too far. In fact, our sin shows that we haven't taken it far enough. I think we often stop short of actually following Jesus fully into the redemption that he so longs to offer us. You see, I think we'll affirm the passage where, where sin abounds, grace abounds what? 
all the more. Practically, in our life, what we believe in. What we believe in. See, here's the way that Eugene Peterson puts it, and um, it's a controversial statement, but I want you to wrestle with it. He says this, In the Christian life, our primary task isn't to avoid sin, which is impossible anyway, but to recognize it. But to recognize it. To recognize it and to bring it to the throne of an almighty God who's already paid for it and who's already taken care of it and to realize that we are caught up in his grace. Because if we were to apply that passage before that we talked about, the way that God frees us from sin is through worship of Jesus. That as he holds up the mirror to our souls and our lives and says to us, this is who you really are, and this is how far I've gone to redeem you. See, when grace connects with the human heart, worship rises up. And we always worship our way into sin. And we worship our way out as well. We worship our way out. And so when David hears these words, you're forgiven. He's hearing God's kindness. He's hearing God's love. And he's hearing his invitation to find life in him. Listen to the way that the great pastor and and author Tim Keller puts it. He says this. It is important to consider how the gospel affects and transforms the act of repentance, which is a, a change in mind that leads to a change in behavior. In religion, the purpose of repentance is basically to keep God happy so that he will continue to bless you and answer your prayers. This means that religious repentance, quote-unquote, is A, selfish, B, self-righteous, C, and bitter all the way to the bottom. But in the gospel, the purpose of repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Christ in order to weaken our need to do anything contrary to God's heart. Now, how awesome is that? That repentance, a returning to God, is an act of worship that stirs our affection for him and frees us to move forward in a completely different way. In a completely different way. So you're probably thinking, well, Paulson, did you read the next verse? Yeah, I did. Here's the way the passage continues. And David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this, you've made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. So lest you hear me making light of sin, I I am not at all making light of sin. I'm making much of Jesus, but I also want us to see that sin has an effect on us, a big time effect on us. And here's the truth that this passage draws out, is that sin's condemnation is taken away, but its consequences remain. I think on this passage as a 
think on this passage as a dad. And, and I don't just want to read it about David. I want to read it. I, I want to read it about me too. David's his his whole life takes a turn here. God says, you're, you're forgiven, but there's consequences of the things that you've done and the places that you've been and the ways that you lived. And so, I don't know, I just think the Holy Spirit wants to say to us today, don't make, don't make light of sin, make much of the cross and take our sin to Jesus that he might restore it. But he takes it so seriously because it trickles over into the lives of people, oftentimes the people that we love the most. Oftentimes the people we love the most. The best thing we can do is continue to fall more in love with Jesus, but to realize there's consequences for my sin. There's consequences for it. Not only for me, but but for those around me. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, I think there's some weightiness in in David's exclamation of that. I mean, in the pathway, the winding pathway that God takes him through to get to this sort of climactic point, you had to see there's there's some weight in David going to God and saying, I've sinned against you. And I'm, I'm praying that God would stir some of us to uncover some things in our life that we've gotten really good at, at hiding or really good at rationalizing away. They're often those things that we say, I'm working on it. I'm trying. And, and I think you would say to us this morning, that's, that's sin. Just call it what it is and come to my throne. And the Lord, Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. You see, here's the truth of the matter, is that when sin is correctly understood, and only then, grace can be fully appreciated. And grace is what changes the human heart, because it stirs up worship, and it changes us, and it makes us brand new people. And so I think God in his, in his leading us this morning to say, all right, let's take, some, let's take a look at who we really are. Let's hold up the mirror a little bit through the word of God and the spirit of God and the people that God surrounded us with. And let's ask some difficult questions, not so that condemnation can be laid on us, but so that life can be offered to us. That's what he's saying. Will you come and will you follow me? Will you allow me to, to poke around in your life and in your heart and point out some things that are absolutely robbing you of life because they've separated you from me? And will you allow me to lead you into paths of righteousness? of my goodness, and of my glory. You see, you and I stand under a new covenant that David didn't stand under. And let me sort of illustrate this through the book of John, chapter 19. It says this, as Jesus stands before Pilate. It says, once more, Pilate came out and he said to the Jews, to this crowd that's in front of him with Jesus standing next to him, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, this is awesome. 
In the same way that Nathan stands in front of David and says, David, you're the man, Pilate stands sort of prophetically before the people of Israel and he says, here is the man. Here's the man. And as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify him. And did you know, did you know, did you know that because they say he's the man, that God no longer says to you, you're the man. That your sin and your shame and your pain and your regret is all crucified to the cross with Jesus Christ. He's the man. He's the man. And so God's invitation to you and to me is to step into the light, taking our sin and our brokenness and our shame to the cross, knowing that Jesus already paid for it. He already paid for it. And so he said, there is great freedom and great life and great truth in taking our brokenness and our hiddenness and our shame to him and saying, Jesus, this is who I really am. Thank you for being the man on my behalf. Thank you for being the man on my behalf. And may his goodness and his grace towards us do two things. One, not allow us to keep our sin hidden and in, in shame, bring it into the light, one. And two, to be people who, as we see ourselves for who we really are, see his cross for what it really did and allow it to stir worship in us that leaves us forever changed to the glory of God, to the glory of God. Would you stand with me as we